Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Social Work Radio with me, your host Vince Peart. Once again and forever we are joined by our co-host Tilly Baden. Tilly my friend, how the devil are you? How have things been since you were last aboard the good ship SWR? Hello everyone. Um, yeah, I'm good, thank you. I um, I had a bit of a fun night out the other day. I went to do a charity bingo event. Never done bingo before in my life. Thought it might be just for old people, but no, it's not. It's actually really good fun. So I went with a group of friends to this charity event. I didn't win anything on the bingo, but I won a bottle of Prosecco in the raffle. So that was all good. Um, And we raised, the event raised £1,300 for the Dorset and Somerset Air Ambulance, which is a charity that's close to all of our hearts as being horse riders that we've had many friends that have needed the air ambulance over the years. So it was was a really good night. But have you ever played bingo before? Is Is it something that just older people do no 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 far from i mean there's this thing i, I don't know if you have it down south but up in the northeast we've got this thing called bongos bingo and it's like a, it's a wild version of bingo you know there's people come out there's rave music there's like dancing on tables it's like you know hyper bingo i would describe and you know bingos bingo's a cool thing you know I, men and women of all ages enjoy the bingo do they not that that was my impression you know bingo's uh bingo's back baby well maybe I had it wrong all these years I was thinking it's one of these games that we have in residential care homes for people but um no I I like the sound of bongo bingo um talking about residential homes I I was discussing I was on a chat with one of my good friends the other day about residential care homes and I was wondering what kind of activities might be put on when folk of my generation are there you know, where we all get to sit around and play Super Mario and Sonic the Hedgehog, where we sit and, you know, listen to Oasis. Like, how will the activities on offer in residential homes look for children of the 80s and 90s? Do you think it'll be tailored? And if you fast forward, you know, 40, 50 years into the future, could you see the offer available in care homes being tailored to the activities that the residents liked when they were younger? I really hope so. Um, But what concerns me, though, is with a lot of the carers that are are younger folk, they seem to forget that older people have different generations, too. Um, So I go into care homes a lot and still see a lot about people talking about the war and reminiscing. But actually, we've we've kind of moved on from there a lot. Yeah, well, the most of the people are, live, most of the people yeah. who live through the war are sadly departed by now. I mean, people who exactly. live through the war are well into the 80s and 90s by now. Exactly. And actually, they'd probably enjoy more like 60s, 70s, 80s exactly. type activities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that's a problem with how the UCs, people that are older, they kind of forget and, and blur people all into one. But yeah, I really hope that we've got sort of millennial activities that go on um I can just imagine us all being sat around yeah a bit of like 90s noughties throwback songs that would be good um yeah, yeah gaming arcade games <laughs> oh, can I go now let me in um just interesting what you say there about um adult care I was having a, a, a savvy debate with one of my good friends in social work last night and uh we were talking about adult social work and, and she isn't an adult social worker. She's a child protection social worker. She's already ever worked in children, but she was really sticking up for adult social work. 
And what she was saying is that she imagines that it is very, very difficult because as you've said there, the point she made is it must be difficult because people just don't care about adults in the same way they care about the children. Is that fair to say, even though she's never worked in that field, is that, do you think she's got the crux of it there? Would you say you saw a similar theme, Tilly? Definitely. I mean, there's just a, a general apathy, I think, towards older people. Um, and as I've talked about in my writing for Social Work News, a lot of times, one of the biggest challenges I come across is trying to inspire social care workers and care mm. staff to actually make life better for older people and not just get stuck into a bit of a rut. Because it's it's got to be a vocation. It can't just be a job with a paycheck. You've got to put effort into it. Um, and unfortunately, that that's not always the case. And we have to deal with a lot of poor quality care um, and then we have the problem where people see older people kind of in an infantilizing type way where they treat them like children again and people regress back to, to childhood. And you get that overprotection then of, of older people and forget that they've had that rich experience throughout their lives where they've been independent their whole lives. So adults is definitely not um, an area of social work to be overlooked. I think it's it, it's really yeah, it does. Rewarding. Mm, yeah, it, it does. Look, and, and we, you know, I've got, I've got, you know, I've got to hold my hands up on this one. We at, um, at Social Work News, we 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 quite often do get criticism for not covering adults in the same detail as as, as children's. And it, it, I've got to be honest, it's difficult because the stories aren't aren't out there as much. Obviously, we're reliant, you know, the clues in the name. We are a social work news site, and obviously on Social Work Radio, we cover that news as well. And there just isn't the same depth of reporting and reviews and research into adult social care, or particularly adult social work, as there is in children's social work. And, you know, we're actively involved. I mean, if you have a look at our key writers, you know, you and Matt, you know, you know two out of our six columnists, you know, are adult writers, you know, you're you know, 50% of this podcast, you come from an adult perspective. We do have the representation there. It's just on a national level, even on a research level, there just isn't the same focus. And you it, it, you can struggle. You can struggle to get the message. It must be frustrating, I imagine. It is. It, it is frustrating. Um, but then again, sometimes it's equally nice that we don't always hit the headlines. Ah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we don't have that ongoing threat that mm. we're going to have our faces across the tabloids because, well, sadly, people just don't really care. If an adult dies, well... They're going to die anyway. People have that attitude when it's it's that's not the same. Any human being, no matter what age they are, is, is still a human being. But we started off the podcast in a cheery way today. We, we, we have, yeah. This isn't um, even the topic. This is meant to be our general no. catch-up, our light-hearted catch-up, and we're talking about you know the void, the eternal void, and malaise of death. Um, talking about well, on a negative subject actually. Uh, we're taking a break from the podcast next week, guys. I will put this out there our uh, our head honcho over at social work news nick farrah who uh, who also edits the show she will be away next week so rather than leave it in my hands to try and piece together the show like some sort of frankenstein's monster and uh, you know allow us to you know allow me to have editorial control i mean god forbid that would happen till you imagine if this podcast went out unedited for once <laughs> that might be the last podcast that ever goes out <laughs> 
<laughs> I know. I feel like Nick's not quite allowing you to do that. She's just, no. just we, wants we to joke make there. sure. Yeah, we joke. Yeah, well, guys, just to be very clear, guys, there's no like salaciousness. There's no like really, you know, chance to be a fine thing. If I had that to talk about in my life, literally, Nick tends to cut out the pauses, the stuttering. Me, I tell you, maybe being a bit confused, I get a word wrong. So you know. It wouldn't be as professional as it is now. But the short story is Nick is going on holiday. I hope she has a lovely time. She's off to Paris, though. She's off to Euro Disney. And with what's going out there at the moment, Tilly, I'm a bit worried for her. I'm a bit worried yeah, for her. Yeah, that's, that's quite scary. But um, hopefully things will settle down. And yes. hopefully everyone in, our, in France that listens to our podcast is, is keeping safe. Yeah, yeah, definitely, guys. Shout out. Um, so, yes, we'll not be off. We won't be here next week. We will be back in two right tilly um let's crack on and get into this week's show are you ready for this my friend i'm excited about this one oh i don't i'm i'm not excited i'm feeling like i'm an imposter <laughs> leading us neatly into this week's podcast um this week guys we are talking about imposter syndrome now this is something tilly and i have discussed you sort of touched around the edges of this on the podcast on occasion. Would that be fair to say, Tilly? Yeah, I don't think you can talk about social work without kind of mentioning imposter syndrome every now and then, can you? I think it's something that no. we all go through. It is certainly something we've all felt, and that you and I in particular have tended to discuss this when we've reflected on the early positions that we've been in our careers and us first starting out and feeling, you know, a little bit like fish out of water at times. The reason I wanted to bring this topic up today is uh, over the weekend on June the 30th, we had a, um, a news story, well, a column from our columnist, Matt B, a good friend of yours and mine, Tilly, and Matt wrote an article called Imposter Syndrome. I am guilty of impersonating someone who knows what he's doing and you know matt out of all of our authors on social work news is the most experienced one you know matt has been a social worker about 14 15 years now he's certainly got the the biggest experience and you know the the lengthiest cv out of all of us but um he uh he talks a bit about imposter syndrome and he says that he he does feel guilty at times of impersonating someone that knows what he's doing, that he doesn't always feel as up to the task as other people would believe. And he almost sees himself as having like a switched on moment. So he switches on, bang, and he becomes a social worker. Then he gets out of that zone. He looks back at himself and he's like, wow, I can't believe I've done that. What do you think of that, Tilly? Have you ever sort of felt that way? Yes, definitely. I really <laughs> love this article from Matt because it's a really familiar feeling um, yeah. for me. And I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners will resonate with, with what Matt said, um, because we get thrust into this position of authority in social work, don't we? Where we have to be the responsible person. We have to be the people that give the good advice and make sensible decisions. Yet many of us have quite chaotic lives and right, have our own personal struggles and we, we would struggle to take our own advice. Mm. And it can be quite a mismatch sometimes between your professional life and your personal life. Um, so I, I definitely resonate with how Matt feels. I think that's that's um, probably quite common out there. Mm. 
I, I like the, what you talked about in terms of that switching on and switching off. And, it, it, it you know, you talked about it resonating with our listeners. It's that bit in particular resonates with me. And in, and in particular, a message that I was given by an ex-girlfriend of mine many years ago. We, we, we'd stopped dating for about, we hadn't been together for about four years by that point, but we, we still stayed in touch. And um, she trained as a nurse. So she, had, she was already trained as a nurse and practicing as a nurse by the time I began my degrees this was before i did my social work masters i was doing a degree a a bsc in child and family studies and as part of that we had a work-based element there was a work-based module so you expected to go out there it wasn't like at a university for social work where they set up your placements you were just asked to try and find a you know local volunteer and i took up a volunteering position in a housing project service it was called key housing projects in carlisle and cumbria and what I did there was I worked as essentially like a, a youth worker, support worker for young people aged 18 to 25 who were experiencing housing issues, homelessness, they were maybe in crash pads, they were maybe living with parents or family members and wanted to move out. It was all based on helping people get their benefits set up, helping them find homes. And essentially it was like a, a sort of semi-youth club as well. People could come out and hang out. We'd have a pool table and things like that. It was a really great place to work. Now, at that point, that was in 2007, and I was um, I was 23 at the time. So I was 23-year-old, and people I was working with and supporting were all a similar age to me, and I didn't have that professional mindset. And I never really said anything inappropriate. I was never, you know, put in a position where I was ever reprimanded or, you know, told off or anything or formally disciplined. But it was raised by my supervisor at the, in the workplace via, you know, the university that I was kind of being a bit too pally, trying to be a bit too friendly. <laughs> imagine me, Tilly, imagine me trying to make people laugh and trying to be friendly. Could you even imagine that? <laughs> That's not you at all, no, is it? No. Obviously. I mean, sure yeah. enough. Sure <laughs> enough. This is 16 years ago. How little we changed. So um, I had a chat. I had a chat with, um, like I said, my ex-girlfriend, Zoe. So I had a chat with her and just chatting on Facebook. I said, look, can I, can I have a chat with you about this? How do you do it? You know, how, how, how do you sort of get yourself into that mindset and disassociate between the person you want to be, particularly when you're interacting with peers in a similar age and what you see is a sort of similar position to you, but you're doing that in a sort of semi-professional because I was very mindful till you of getting it right because I knew I wanted to be a social worker and I knew I've got to iron these things up before I became a social worker. And I suppose that's kind of the whole point of placements, isn't it? Particularly volunteer placements, you know, you've got to use them to iron out your faults, have you not? Definitely. That's the whole point of them. And that was the point of this one. It certainly worked for me. And she said, do you know what, Vince? You've just got to Im- put an imaginary hat on. She says, and, it, and I don't know if she did this herself or she just knew my childlike tendencies that things like imaginary hats would, yeah, that suits me down on the ground. So she said, yeah, when, when you walk in, you've got to put an imaginary hat on and just imagine you become a different person. So I did that. And I remember, right, I've got to put my imaginary hat on. And that really, really helped. So when you talked about that resonating, that resonated with something that I went through, God, you know, close to 20 years ago now. Let's get this out of the way then, Tilly. <laughs> Let's ask the obvious question, the elephant in the room. Have you experienced imposter syndrome? And indeed, do you still experience it at times? Yes. Uh, so many times I've experienced this. I mean, it's less frequent now, I have to say. Um, probably the last out of it um, was about a year ago, actually, when I changed jobs again mm-hmm. um, and, and came into my current job. 
um, as a manager in a mental capacity at team. And I felt to myself, am I, am I good enough? Am I going to be able to cope with the demands of the job? Just the usual kind of self-doubt creeping in. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, luckily it, it soon went away um, and it was fine. And to be honest, I haven't really experienced that since then. But going back earlier on in my career, certainly when I first started out, it was continuous. Um, so as you know, I started off in children's services and what you've just said about working with your peers. So I was 21 when mm. I, I, I became a social worker in children's services and I, I was the same age as many of the parents that I was supporting. Yeah, yeah. Were you a bit um, younger than a lot of people? I, I, imagine? I was younger. Yeah, younger than a lot of them. Um, and I found that really difficult and I did just kind of think how am I going to cope with this um and perhaps that's maybe one of the reasons actually why I didn't stay in children's services because at least in adult services you're working with when you're working with older people I mean it's it's guaranteed that you're going to be younger than them um so there's no kind of expectation there that you're going to be more worldly wise than they are but in children's that's that I felt that really acutely and I think, again, every time I've switched jobs, every time I've gone into maybe, I suppose initially when I went into meetings, I found it particularly in schools when I was working with maybe head teachers or heads of year or deputy <laughs> heads. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I was only just out of school myself. And I found that really hard to kind of yeah. just get my head around working now as colleagues with people that they were in charge not that long ago in my life. Um, go back go back three years you were deferring to these people exactly and, and now you're there and they're almost deferential to you looking f- for you to lead on these issues it's a big shift yeah. in three years it is as well and and dealing with things like the police or doctors or consultants again really really experienced professionals or or people in authority that you would look up to suddenly are looking to you with for the answers and that can feel really uncomfortable um, especially when you don't really know the answers yourself at least now I can kind of at least blag it and um, I I have my my law and theories and knowledge to fall back Mm. on whereas when you're starting out you don't have that so it can feel like you're kind of feeling around in the dark um, with all these people around you and you feel like they're going to judge you or they're going to suddenly know that you're, you're, you're an imposter. You're, you're, you're not who you say you are. You're not as knowledgeable as, as you're making out. Um, so that's, that can be really hard to deal with. Do you think it matters what age you come in then? You know, if you, do you think if you hadn't come in at 21, but you'd come in at 31, that perhaps it might not have been acute, so acute? potentially potentially around the schools um I might have felt a little bit more comfortable but certainly imposter syndrome affects anyone of all ages I don't think that you ever can get to the point where you're never going to experience that again if you're in a new situation it doesn't matter how old you are you're still going to feel like you're the newbie and that's that's a feeling that can make people feel uncomfortable well, let's have a look at the flip side. What would you rather? What would you rather to leave? You know, if you were managing the person, would you rather they came fresh into the profession and did feel like a bit of an imposter and were taking baby steps and did feel, you know, a bit reticent at times? Or would you rather somebody came in and didn't feel that whatsoever and went in as if they knew everything? Which do you think is more dangerous for our clients and which would you rather manage? 
Oh, I mean, the dangerous one is the arrogant one. Um, None of us know everything. And no matter how long you've practiced, you're still learning new stuff every day. Um, And if you come in with that mindset that you're, you don't need to be taught anything, that's, well, you're not going to stay in social work. That just doesn't fit with our profession at all. Well, hang on, hold the line there. It doesn't fit with our profession, but you tell me you've never met people like that, Tilly? I have, but fortunately it's been rarer than I perhaps feared it would be. Mm-hmm. I think occasionally you'll get someone new that kind of acts confident, but then as soon as you start to unpick it, you realise that they're just compensating and are actually quite frightened themselves it's kind of they're putting on a persona so I think if you can tackle that straight away Mm -hmm. um, and get in there and realize that actually you can just it just crumbles and you can start to build them up again Um, that's that's much easier to manage when someone gets a dose of humble pie (laughs) <laughs> yeah 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 i um last time i experienced imposter syndrome was around three years ago when i was promoted to be a manager now it was a position that i didn't actively seek essentially i was asked to you know help i was i was encouraged to apply to the position by my service manager um at the time because there was a gap that was coming up and needed to be filled for a temporary period i was there as an agency social worker so it made sense for me to slot into that role rather than them to look to appoint, you know, somebody brand new into a position that might have only been there for four or five months. Um, Yeah, that was the last time that I felt it because I was doing something completely different. And not only was I doing something completely different, obviously, you've known me for six years or so now, Tilly, you knew that I never wanted to be a manager. In all the times that we've discussed things, when have I ever told you that I wanted to be a social work manager? Hardly ever. And I was so surprised you took this role. I, I really yes. thought, wow, I didn't think you were going to. But but you did. And you were a brilliant manager. I know you didn't stay in management, management long, but... Oh, about six um, months in total. About six yeah. months in total. But I, I wouldn't... I would never have sorted myself. But you know what? It's different. It's when somebody asks you to do something and help out and, and, and sees that in you, you know, sometimes people can see things in you that you don't want yourself and being presented with an offer that you never thought was on the table can sometimes be more tempting than pursuing an offer that you wanted. Definitely. I mean, that's how I got my first management job there we as go. well. I did there it as a comment. They were like, can you just cover for a bit? You'll be fine. Mm. Um, I did and actually I loved it and then I got the permanent job so um yeah, yeah I, I, I get that completely I mean I wouldn't change it at all it, it, it gave me a, a hell of a, a hell of a ground and experience and it's done wonders for my career because now you know even though I'm not applying for managers jobs and obviously I work independently now um but having that experience of quality assuring people's work of leading people's work of seeing newly qualified social workers through completion of their ASYE doing sickness doing supervisions you know to see the other side makes you a better social worker as well as teaching you how to be a manager. It really does. So I'm, I'm very, very grateful of that experience. And the service manager, Ben, who gave me that experience, you know, I, I'll be forever indebted to him. It was wonderful, but I couldn't, I can't help but admitting for the first, didn't last that long, about first two or three weeks, I felt, what am I doing here? This is a position that I'm not, I didn't train for. I never really wanted. And I was like, you know, that's, I think that's why I felt so out of my depth because I'd gone from not even wanting to be a manager one week 
and then being a manager the next week. It was literally, I think, from yeah, interview to starting in the role. It was maybe about two weeks in total. But it was a very, very short period from never even really having considered being a manager to then stepping up and being one. And I was like, you know, I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready for this. I didn't want to do this. I went out and bought all the books about managers. You know what I'm like, Tilly, I started. Of course you for, did. <laughs> for, I've got this, this still have a shelf to this day, like the perfect manager, Daring to Lead by Brené Brown I got. And I'm reading all these books. And I need to be the best manager, the best manager, the best manager. But I'll tell you something. If not for me having felt that imposter syndrome, I wouldn't have worked as hard to get as good as I did so quickly. So that imposter syndrome, knowing that I was out of my depth and fearing I was out of my depth was a great motivator. And fear is a motivator, isn't it? If we fear and if we're worried, we can either go into our shell and like shy away from it all, we can step up. And that caused me to step up feeling like an imposter and thinking I'm not quite good enough. I need to be, well, not quite good enough. Feeling I'm no good at all. I need to step up. I need to get better. So I don't think imposter syndrome is a bad thing. I'm going to put it out there, Tilly. I don't think if you can harness that and use it to improve and use it to drive you on, I think it can be a very, very productive feeling indeed, as long as you use it as fuel and not as something to shy away from. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you don't learn when you're in your comfort zone, do you? No, You've got to you be don't. pushed out of that that learning zone, that growth zone um, to actually be able to develop. So I think that that's a really valid point. Let's talk about that then, because that leads us nicely into an article you wrote on this subject. Oh, almost a year ago, back to August 2022. And Tilly Baden, social worker and team manager, that's your tagline on Social Work News, Tilly. Uh, you wrote an article on how to cope with social work imposter syndrome. And there's a line, well, a couple of lines in it that I love, you say. There was a fine line between imposter syndrome and healthy doses of self-doubt. The absence of self-doubt creates arrogance and complacency. Social work is such a complex, ever-changing and varied field. None of us could ever be expected to hold all the answers 100% of the time. And I like that because that kind of says what I was just talking about feeling there. So do you want to talk us through this article, Tilly, and give us uh, some of your tips on how to cope with social work imposter syndrome? Yeah, of course. So... Um, I think I, I talk about my experience of going into a, a new job, but I suppose that the main part of the article is around what do you do with that? Um, mm -hmm. How do you overcome it? How do you how do you break down those barriers? So um, I like to come out with with these few sort of hints and tips within the article. So I think firstly, you need to remind yourself of your achievements and social workers can really, really struggle to identify their own strengths and be proud of what they've done. But just to get through the degree course is a mammoth achievement in itself. It's it's a really tough course and it, it's hard being a social worker. So I think just reminding yourself of all those positive things that you've done, um, the feedback that you've had, whether that's from a previous manager or colleague or a service user, get into that, um, like flicking through that that sort of bundle of CPD that you have and just and kind of show yourself what you've you've learned over the years. I think it's really important to talk about um, imposter syndrome as well when you're feeling that with either a trusted colleague or a supervisor or or someone that's completely outside of social work because they will help give you that sense yes. of clarity and perspective because it can be really hard to do that yourself. That's why self-therapy doesn't tend to work. You need someone else as a, as a a different perspective 
um, just to try and, and get you out of your own head. My other bit of advice that I gave was fake it until you make it with a bit of a caveat to that, that I'm not talking about obviously going rogue and doing whatever you want, breaching professional standards, going beyond the scope of your expertise. But that's kind of that what you were talking about earlier about having that imagining hat um, that you've got so that you put that on and you go in and you're confident. And if you act confident, it's self-fulfilling prophecy, then you will eventually be confident. Yeah. And, the, hold and finally... That, hold the line on fake it until you make it, because we will get back to that on a little bit ah, Okay. Sorry. Okay. And finally, what was the last one? And finally, just being kind to yourself and remembering that it's normal. And I remember, I remember this, I, I referenced this in the article. So Lady Hale, who was the Supreme Court Justice, um, as she retired a few years ago, but she got to the, the chief position in all of the courts in the UK. And she still talks about feeling that imposter syndrome, even <laughs> on her first day of when she sat on the Supreme Court bench and thought, what am I doing here? despite all her accolades that she had and all the achievements that she had, she was still feeling that even sat on the, as the chair of the Supreme court. Um, So it's nice to know that we're not alone. We're in good company with um, them when we're feeling imposter syndrome. So Tilly, uh, despite you being one of my best friends and despite me being the content editor of social work news, I wrote an article today without remembering that you actually wrote a very similar article last August. It was only after I wrote my article and I thought, oh, have a look what else we've done that might have tips about imposter syndrome. I realised you'd done your piece. So forgive me, Tilly. Forgive me if I've genuinely, inadvertently and, and you know, unknowingly uh, plagiarised any of your work because I wrote a piece which is available at mysocialworknews.com. It should still be on the main uh, featured news stories whenever you go and check out this podcast i wrote a piece where i um, broke down you know similar points really how to stop feeling like a social work imposter how to overcome imposter syndrome and social work so i'm just going to quickly go over the eight tips that i've put again some of these are similar to yours the first strategy that i advise people to do today is just to normalize your feelings understand feelings of self-doubt and inadequacy are common especially in professions like social work that involves high level of responsibility and emotional engagement And I offered advice that discussing those feelings with trusted colleagues or mentors can help normalize them. And I think you or I speaking to each other, we help normalize our feelings of inadequacy at times, don't we? Oh, we do. I think this is an informal supervision every week that we we talk on the podcast. So definitely. And our (laughs) listeners uh, benefit from that too. My second strategy was to cultivate self-awareness. You know, you've got to really practice self-reflection because it can help you understand and identify the patterns that trigger imposter syndrome. And I believe that understanding situations or tasks that amplify these triggers, you can sort of use them. If you know yourself and you know what triggers you, it can give you an idea about what to work on, can it not? Yeah, yeah, of course it can. This next one, similar to what you've said, I've said, you know, strategy three is to acknowledge your competencies. Make a list of everything you have achieved, like you were talking about with Lady Hale there. You know, if you list your qualifications, guys, you know, You've spent three, maybe five years at university. You've spent how many years before that volunteering and working in other fields? You've got how much experience with friends and family? You've got how many years of experience in social work? All the books you've read, all the training you've done, all the assignments you've written. 
you know, look back at everything you've achieved, look at that positive feedback, and maybe even write that down and refer to that list when self-doubt creeps into your mind. Because sometimes, Tilly, in social work, we can be so busy looking ahead that we rarely take the time to reflect on our achievements, do we? No, and I think that's the same advice that we would give to the people that we're supporting if they're struggling. And, and so just practice what you preach. Yeah. Um, strategy four in this article that I wrote today, I said, set realistic expectations. Nobody's perfect, guys. You know, making mistakes is part of the learning process. That is why we won't be doing a podcast next week, because we inevitably make mistakes and we won't have our good friend Nick to edit it for us. So instead of striving perfection, you've got to aim for progress. You know, you, you're not going to be perfect, but you can aim to be better. Celebrate those small wins, take baby steps forward towards those larger goals and ask yourself, as you've just said there, Tilly, what would I expect of my clients in this situation? And should we not, Tilly, learn to show our clients the same, learn to show ourselves, should I say, the same care we show our clients? Yeah, that's wise words that we've given many, many times on this podcast. So talking about being kind, um, strategy five, to avoid imposter syndrome or to manage it, should I say, is to practice self-compassion. You know, learn to treat yourself with the same kind of kindness and understanding that you offer your clients when you fail or make mistakes. You've got to forgive yourself and you've got to treat failures as opportunities to grow because that can help reduce feelings of imposter syndrome and it will take away the pressure that drives it. Strategy six is to seek supervision or mentoring. Now that could be regular supervision with a manager, or it could be mentoring with a peer, such as, you know, what Tilly and I do. Um, look for constructive feedback, look for validation, look for guidance. It can also help normalize your experiences and feelings, providing reassurances that you are not alone in your struggles because any decent manager would surely admit that they also had issues with imposter syndrome too, would they not, Tilly? Oh, I have. That's normally one of my first things that I talk to to my new supervisees. Uh, and I tell them some of my biggest mistakes in social work and, yeah. and tell them some stories. And that normally helps break the ice. Of course it does. You know, and, and then, do you know what? That's why I put a fair bit of myself into working with clients directly. I think if you can put some of yourself into your practice in a safe way, it makes you a better social worker, it makes you a better manager, it makes you more humane, and you can certainly you know, build connections where you may fail otherwise. Strategy seven is to focus on your professional development. This is kind of what I was talking about earlier, guys, in relation to what I did when I felt a bit out of my depth when I was you know, promoted to manager. You know, look at your professional development, look at your continuing your education and training, how that can enhance your confidence, your own abilities, sign up for online courses, do things like listen to our podcast, you know, pursue further education, get accreditation in your areas of interests. Essentially, the more competent you feel, the less likely you're going to feel imposter syndrome. That is, Tilly, is it not why you and I don't feel it as much now? Because over the years, we have become more educated, more experienced, we've developed training which means we don't often feel like imposters anymore simply because we've worked on our deficiencies. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, exactly. And the more you do something, the more comfortable you're going to be in that sphere. Like riding a horse. And the last one, and we always bang on about this on the podcast, the reason we always bang on about it, because it is so important. Guys, you must look, learn to practice mindfulness and self-care. You know, look at meditation, look at deep breathing, look at yoga. Those can all help reduce anxiety, increase your sense of self-acceptance and self-worth. You know, so what, what we're saying with this is that if you do feel imposter syndrome and seven of the other strategies haven't worked, when you are feeling that way, 
you can ground yourself, you can focus on yourself, you can bring your mind back to the present and those feelings of anxiety and worry and fear that surround imposter syndrome, whilst the imposter syndrome itself might not go away, you can at least help reduce the physical symptoms of anxiety and worry that may center on those. So what do you think, Tilly, between our two articles, do you think there are a couple of uh, tips there that some of our listeners may take out and put into their uh, self-care toolbox? Definitely. And and just on a final note, really, there is don't be afraid to seek professional help as well, because um, imposter syndrome can easily slip into anxiety and depression, yeah. other mental illness. And if you're noticing those signs, the earlier that you get that help, the, the better it's going yes. to be. Don't suffer in silence. Very well said, my friend. I'm glad you've put on the end. That's very important. We're going to end on two questions. The first one, and I'm coming back to this because you mentioned it earlier. Tilly, is it safe to fake it until you make it in social work? Because you use that piece, and I, I know in your article you did you put a disclaimer in there, which I, you know, I get that. I'm not contesting that, but the general advice is if you are feeling like an imposter, is to fake it until you make it, and that may work in most fields of our life. But when we are talking about something so important as the practical application of social work, which ultimately leads to very, very important decisions being made about the lives of vulnerable people. Is it safe to fake it until you make it? I think, it, it, I mean, this this phrase gets taken out of context a lot. And it's about a mindset. It's not about practicing outside your areas of expertise. It's about dealing with those internal feelings. And then you're faking confidence, um, not faking actually doing the job or knowing what you're doing because if you don't know what you're doing you need to get some support you need to get your supervision guidance from colleagues and managers absolutely we do not want to be making decisions that we are out of our depth this is about managing severe feelings of self-doubt not about um dealing with incompetence bingo 10 out of 10 there, Tilly. Oh, the last question. <laughs> I, I'm not even going to say I can't even follow You're up. You're not even going in there. Okay. No, 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 no. I just, you know, <laughs> it's, you know, it's a work of art, so we're just going to leave it untouched. Um, I, I probably will, you know, dip my arm into this one, though. We've spent this podcast talking about imposter syndrome solely in the context of social work. Can we have it in normal life as well as in work? Does imposter syndrome ever creep into our personal lives? Yes, of course it does. I mean, I feel like a child all the time. Um, adult life is really hard. Um, and I think, I don't know if it's just me and my social media fit, um, feeds, but certainly when I'm scrolling through things like Twitter and TikTok and Instagram, I get loads of, of posts where people are really doubting their abilities to adult um, and I feel like that a lot of the time. So I think it, it spans way beyond social work. It's just a feeling that a lot of people get. And apparently you don't ever outgrow that. Because I was talking to my mum about this the other day and she's mind me saying, well, hopefully she won't. She's in her late 60s. And she was like, I still feel like a child all the time and feel like there are people doing adult life better than she is. So I'm, I don't know if I'll ever outgrow it. Probably not. I think the difference is, is people are just, people are a lot more open about the feelings now than they maybe were years and years ago, that everybody probably felt like this. But, but equally, you've got the flip side of things that if we go back a couple of generations, people didn't have the same options that they do in life now. You know, what, what options did you have? You know, if you're a, a man growing up where I grew up, well, 
you were down the mine or you were on the farm, that was it. Pick pick which option, what do you want to do? Do you want to be a miner or do you want to be go and work as a farmhand? If you're a woman, your options were even more limited. It was basically, well, which man do you want to marry? And even then, you probably had very limited choice. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, yeah, you're a baby machine, aren't you, if you're exactly, a woman? Exactly, exactly. So I think it's it's just a sign of the times that, you know, people can be more open and we we don't we are lucky now. I know a lot of people listen to this and think, oh, modern life's rubbish, modern life's terrible. But statistically, guys, I'm sorry to break it to you. We really have never had it quite as good as we've got it now in terms of, you know, all available statistics in terms of finance and access to finance and health, life expectancy and so on. I know it's dipping in certain areas, but there's a whole wide world of never, we've never had it as good as we've had it right now and ever before. So if we go back a couple of generations, Tilly, people had to grow up. You know, you didn't if you were if you were sent off to war at 18 you had to grow up pretty quick didn't you yeah i mean i can't even imagine well, it was 16 some of it there we go going out and being, it, it's horrendous you can't even imagine you look at a 16 year old now and you think gosh how how yeah. could they do that so we've already got to go back a couple of generations to our great to our grandparents and great grandparents series depending on the age of um, you guys that are listening to the podcast to see that we're in that era. So I, I think that, you know, we just live, we, we were a lot, we've got a lot more freedoms in modern society. And I think sometimes being presented with all of those freedoms and all of those options and being bombarded with images of people on social media, friends and family who are only posting the positives. Most people are only posting their wins on social media rather than not Tilly. Yeah, we're in the age of information, aren't we? It's not Bingo. the industrial revolution, it's the information revolution. Yes, I think if you look on Instagram or Facebook and see, I'm using those two rather than Twitter because Twitter we tend to connect with strangers more often. But if you look at, you know, Facebook and Instagram where most of your connections will be family members and friends. You're seeing people getting married, you're seeing people having success at work, you're seeing people in new cars and new homes, you're seeing people on holidays all over the world. And you sometimes can't help but to look at that and think, oh, well, I feel like a bit of an imposter. They seem to have life together, but I don't. And for me, I think that's perfectly normal. I think that's there's nothing whatsoever with feeling that way. And if I may add this, the people that I know who were posting the images of happiness and outward success the most on Facebook and Instagram, if I know them well enough, most of the time they tend to be the people that are probably the unhappiest, Tilly. I know that sounds probably quite cruel to say, but that's been my experience in terms of my friends and family. What I've tended to find is that the people out there that are genuinely happy and content genuinely don't need to tell people about it. Mm-hmm. That's a hard truth, isn't it? Yeah. It is a hard desert. Boom, a truth bomb to end <laughs> on there. So, yeah, look, guys, it's normal. Imposter syndrome is normal. It's normal in social work. It's normal in life. That's simply what we do as human beings. We don't want you to fight it. We don't want you to run away from it. But in order to make it easier on you, in order to mitigate the worst excesses of it, you can check out Tilly's article. You can check out my article. Head over to mysocialworknews.com. I have a, have a look on the homepage. I've just typed in imposter syndrome into the search bar and you'll get those articles up and hopefully Tilly they will take something from yours and mine words on this we hope they do at least don't we yeah yeah if they can reach just the people that that need it the most then then we've done our job well because we've been there haven't we Tilly that's what we're trying to say we have been there too yes learn from our experiences and mistakes yeah yeah definitely and then one day you guys can maybe be on a podcast feeling like imposters instead 
Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Come on this show. Why not? You could give it a go, being Vince and I for the day. Oh, what, what an exciting premise to offer our listeners. On that note, guys, once again, we will not be back next week. We will be back in mid-July with our next show. Until then, you can catch our news stories over at mysocialworknews.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I have a search for myself, Vince Peart, or Tilly, Tilly Baden, or have a look for our handles under Social Work World or Social Work News. As always, we would greatly value you guys leaving a review. If you can head over to Spotify or Podbean or iTunes, wherever you listen to your show, leave us a review. We will read it out when we are next back. Until we join you again, it is goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.